You're listening to the Seahawks Insiders. Wentz from the shotgun, takes the snap. Here comes the rush. Wentz gets hit by Frank Clark, and Clark slams him down. Getting you ready for Seahawks football every Sunday. First and ten, the play fake. Russell looks, going to lay it up for the end zone. Doug Baldwin reaches out, makes the catch. Is he in? He is. Touchdown, Seahawks. Powered by Seahawks.com. Welcome to the Seahawks Insiders Podcast as we get you ready for all things Seahawks ahead of their matchup against the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday night. Hello, everyone. I'm Jen Mueller, sideline reporter for the Seahawks, joined, as always, by John Boyle from Seahawks.com. Hi, Jen. How are you? I am average. Well, it depends on in which degree you're asking me. Like, if you're asking, is my Christmas stuff taken care of? Am I ready for the weekend and for the holiday? Yes. Holiday baking got done. All of the gifts got sent. All of the gifts got ordered. You're on top of things. If you're asking, how am I after the Seahawks game in San Francisco over the weekend, I'm Uh, average. Yeah. That's a fair, I think average is a fair take on that game. Because they weren't, the Seahawks didn't play terrible in that game. Minus one very glaring problem, which is 148 yards of penalties. As Pete Carroll outlined, they ran the ball well. They got the turnover differential in their favor. They did a lot of things. They usually win them games. They were good on third down. But you can't have 14 turnovers for 148 yards, especially when a lot of those came late in crucial moments. And I would say that there is a few of those that can absolutely be cleaned up right off the bat. You had a few personal fouls and, and some unnecessary roughness that that really is about controlling your own emotions. And that game was a whole lot chippier than what we saw in Seattle and was among the chippiest I have seen this year at field level. Yeah, I think the 49ers, you know, they they got... I don't know if embarrassed is a fair word, but they got beat pretty good up here. And there's obviously a lot of connections to this team, most notably Richard Sherman, but you've got a bunch of guys who played here, the division rivalry aspect of it. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty feisty game. But still, when you look at some of those penalties, and, and we'll take a look at this, and then we'll jump into the matchup against the Chiefs, what everything means for the Seahawks and the playoff positioning. But let's continue on this trend because penalties really were the story of that game. You can argue penalties a couple of different ways. I thought it was interesting, Pete Carroll's comments this week to the media about how they noticed an increase in the number of holding calls that came in the middle of the year. Yeah, it really goes back to a couple weeks ago. The last, I think, was was it the last 49ers game or another game around that time where all of a sudden they just started calling a ton of holding. And... Look, if you go back and watch most of the calls, I I can't think of every single one off the top of my head, but most of the holdings especially, you can look at and say, yeah, that's a hold. I think where it's fair for people sometimes to complain or question is, are you calling it evenly both ways? And that's where it's like you can find, you know, there's plays where it looks like Jaron Reed's getting grabbed. looks like Frank's getting grabbed. So that I can get the frustration when the numbers are so uneven. But look, the Seahawks know they can clean a lot of that up. There are a couple plays, and as as Pete Carroll said, sometimes you got to let Russ, you know, escape figure and do it, it on out. his own, figure out you it's, can't, it's you know, problem if you're, solving on his yeah, own. if you get beat, you can't tackle the guy and that, that costs them a lot, you know, some 
big holds late in the game. And then I would say that there were some penalties where you will take your chance on that every single time. The Delano Hill call and the Shaq Griffin call, I don't know that you teach them to do it any differently from the technique standpoint. In fact, Shaq, after the game, while he called it a terrible call, I was impressed. He walked through his entire thought process. You yeah. know, it's a, He knew exactly what he was doing, how he was positioning his hand and his body from him to the receiver. And it just so happens that the call does not go his way, but I don't know that he changes anything yeah. for next time. I mean, time. his right hand was kind of down by the guy's hip at one point, but, you know, did he affect him? Did he pull on him? Was it before the ball was in the air? Would it have been, you know, there's just so much you can look at. But, yeah, it's, he made a great play on the ball. They called it, it you know, it's kind of there's nothing you can do about it now. But it's tough. And the Delano one, I'd almost forgotten about that because we focused so much on those late game ones. But I, I think that one was even less of a penalty than than Shaquille's yeah and you know here's what I'm going to say about the officiating across the board look an official will never ever cost you the game I learned that as a uh, young athlete I it was reinforced to me when I myself was a football official for a number of years the thing that drives me crazy is the inconsistency among officials and officiating crews and that is one thing that I want to see the NFL get better at and part of it is there is so much on the line for every single play in every game that you are trying to legislate essentially with the rule book how things should be called and you forget that there are real humans playing the game and real humans making the call. I do think we will see the officiating improve next year simply because the dynamics of the crews will be better. That's another thing that's bothered me this year. You have uh, changed crews a lot. You have some new white hats that don't have as much experience. And if you watch the dynamic of the crews themselves, they're not functioning on the same page. So that's my little soapbox about that. <laughs> it, it just, it drives me crazy, right? The Seahawks, you're a former referee. You're allowed the Seahawks to could have done that, but it just like, you, you got to at some point kind of take a look at, and how you're doing that, and you can't discount experience and communication. Okay, I'm off my soapbox on officials. All right. What else did we learn from that game on Sunday? Uh, well, that, I, sorry, I just keep going back to the penalties. But, uh, you know, I think we learned we've got some injury concerns to worry about. That's that's one thing. And, you know, what's going to happen if if DJ Fluker's not back, if Bradley McDougal can't go, your, your depth could get tested. Uh, on a positive note, as we mentioned they're still running the ball really well, still doing a lot of things well. But, you know, I think big picture, we need to see the defense clean up some big plays because no no disrespect to Mullins and the 49ers, but what the Chiefs are bringing into CenturyLink Field is a lot better offense. You do wonder how much of that would improve with K.J. Wright on the field. He is trending in that direction, but it might be a game time decision as he has been dealing with that knee injury. If you talk to KJ, he says that he's playing and he says that he feels better than he has all year after having some treatment on that bulky knee. And we heard Ken Norton tell the media this week for as good as Bobby Wagner is KJ Wright makes him better. So I wonder some of those deep plays, you know, you can look at the secondary, but you also need to look at the contact and where the first contact was made by a defender that seems to fall kind of in the middle of the field where maybe KJ's experience can help. And a lot of what the 49ers did well was hit their tight ends in the middle of the field and get that yards after catch. Chiefs have Travis Kelsey, who's got 1,220 receiving yards and 10 touchdowns. So 
If you can cover the tight end, that will help a ton this week. Yeah. If you go back to the offensive side of the ball, the Seahawks had a 100-yard rusher for the first time in a month, and Chris Carson rushed for the most yards that he has rushed for in a single game this Knocking year. Knocking on the door to 1,000. He is 87 yards away from 1,000 yards. He would be Seattle's first 1,000-yard rusher since Marshawn Lynch did it in 2014. And, you know, look – I would love to see that number happen in the first half of the game on Sunday because I want to see just how many more yards they can rack up. I mean, Seattle's still averaging 150 yards a game. I believe, yep, 154.9. Yeah, and I believe Marshawn had 1,400 yards that year. So while that might be a stretch to think Chris Carson can reach that in the regular season, I do think he he can challenge that in a pretty significant way. And look, if they can run the ball, that's going to be hugely important because you want to keep that Chiefs offense off the field. You don't want Patrick Mahomes to get 10 possessions. If you can put together a bunch of long clock-eating drives running the ball, you know maybe you only get four or five yards to carry, but you keep doing that first, second, third down, that would be a great formula in this game. I do think that time of possession is the crucial factor in this game. And the Chiefs defense, you know, for as much as we talk about their offense and how explosive that is, and and we'll get back to that in just a second, but the defense is averaging, you know, five yards a rush for the opponents. So that would tend to... Biggest number in the NFL. Yeah, that trends in the Seahawks' direction. And and if you can kind of force them to to really be on the field. And look, here's the other thing. The Seahawks running backs and the, the play calling in the first couple of quarters of games the last few weeks, I don't know if you've noticed, at home, but they're running sideline to sideline. They are really wearing out defenses in the first and second quarter by the way that they're running the ball just all across the field. I think that sets up in the Seahawks' favor if you don't get behind the stakes and if you're converting on third downs. Exactly. You can't, we can't see the penalties that get them in those long situations because it's hard to run the ball there. And again, convert on third down, as you just said, keep the sticks moving. I think the CX are going to be able to move the ball really well and score points in this game. It's just, can you keep Kansas City off the field enough that they don't just go crazy on their end? One of the reasons that becomes a bigger question mark this week is because we don't know the status of DJ Fluker. He will be a game-time decision. We do know that he has been going through walkthrough. We have seen him go through some pregame workouts the last couple of weeks, and uh, we don't have Jordan Simmons anymore to talk about in there, which John, it's amazing to think he becomes the linchpin that you worry about when he's not there, when he wasn't even part of the team until right before the season. Yeah, I mean, no no Seahawks fans probably knew who Jordan Simmons was when he was claimed off waivers, and then most people kind of weren't giving him any thought until Fluker got hurt. Seahawks go down to L.A. and rush for 273 yards, and they rush for over 200 yards again with Simmons in the lineup a couple weeks ago. Had another solid day running the ball, and unfortunately, you know, for a guy with a tough injury history in college, he's going back on IR. So, yeah, we'll see what they do. Pete Carroll obviously didn't want to give that away in his Wednesday press conference. Posick was the guy who came in in the game last week, so that's one option, but we'll, we'll see what they do. But, yeah, it's, it's tough when you're down to your third option at any position, especially on the offensive line. And Ethan Posick has been an interesting player to watch, and I'm curious your opinion on this, John. You know, the way that he fit into Tom Cable's system is different than the way he fits into Mike Solari's system. So some people would look at Ethan Posick and say, well, he's clearly taken a step back if Simmons was the guy to replace Fluker and not Posick. Or you can look at the situation and say, but it's a different offensive line. He's playing really light as a guard. 
Yeah. It's yeah, it's tough on guys sometimes. Well, this can happen in a lot of positions, but really offensive line and probably quarterback are where it shows up most is system matters a lot. What, you know, what kind of offense are you running? What kind of blocking do you want to do? And when Tom Cable was here, the offense they were running and the line they wanted, they wanted, you know, they still want big guys, but they wanted the mobility more than the size. And Posick is a really good athlete. He can play every position. They love that versatility, but yeah, you're right. For this type of guard the Seahawks want under Solari, they want bigger, kind of mauler guys. That's why they went out and got Fluker. So, look, I'm not going to close the book on Ethan Posick right no. now. He's still a young guy with a lot of talent. And even if he's not starting, he brings a lot of value that you can put him in literally anywhere on that line yes. in a game if you need him. So, we'll, you know, again, we'll see what they do. But I would say if he's the guy this week – it's a lot easier to go into a week practicing that position all week long, knowing you're playing, than getting thrown in middle of the game when you've been practicing. Because he's that versatile guy, during the week you see him practice everywhere. He lines up all yes. over. Whereas if and he's, he's this... got first team and second team yes. responsibilities because he's also exactly. the center. Yeah. So, yeah. look, if you know you're going with him this week and he gets all those reps, that's going to make a big difference for him. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And, again, you wonder how that matches up just in general across that Kansas City front and how much personnel can um, can be, I don't, I don't know, overshadowed. What's the word I'm looking for? Maybe minimized just when you take a look at style overall up front. The group is stronger than any individual. You're going against a Kansas City team that, is okay with giving up yards on the ground. Yeah. Now, if you flip this conversation around, we know that we're going to see Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball a lot. What does that mean for the Seahawks defense, given the number of question marks? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's fully healthy. The Chiefs are a tough challenge. If Bradley McDougal is is up in the air and he can't go, if you know, if they don't have KJ, that's going to be tough for him because this Chiefs offense is. I mean, look. Patrick Mahomes is a first-round pick. We all kind of you, you take a guy in the first round, you have high expectations. I know a lot of teams were high on him, but I don't think anyone saw this coming. I mean, I, his first year as a starter, the guy's thrown forty-five touchdowns. He's got one hundred fourteen point eight passer rating. It's it is really impressive to see. I have heard a few interviews though coming out of Kansas City that say yes. And for as impressive as he is, he still is prone to make mistakes. And I do think that that's where the Seahawks need to keep their eyes open for taking advantage of those. One of the things that we've seen Patrick Mahomes do is he, he just throws from any arm angle. Yeah. And he will set his feet and throw across his body without changing his feet. And it was Trent Green that I was listening to this morning, former quarterback, who said sometimes that'll catch him because if he's not mechanically sound he'll wing it downfield he'll trust his receivers too much or he'll trust his arm too much and that's where he throws an interception yeah there are some mistakes there i mean the most notable one and you know that shootout with the rams earlier this year they turned the ball over five times and some of those were on him some weren't but you know to going back to the arm angle and the crazy throws it that part of his game reminds me a lot of russell wilson and i don't think it's a coincidence that both these guys played baseball at a very high level that ability to you know Throw up from weird ang arm angles, different platforms, rolling left, rolling right. It's it's really impressive some of the throws that he can make that just when he lets it go, you think, well, that's not going to work. But some of them are a little questionable, and you wonder if it could catch up to him. You would hope maybe he makes a few mistakes this week. The Seahawks would certainly take it. Well, and Pete Carroll said, you know, of course everything's going great for him. He hasn't run into any adversity. You know, you trust your skills an awful lot if you don't have any pushback against them because everything is going right. So we'll see if the Seahawks can give him a little pushback. The comparison between Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson, I don't know if I like it. 
I'm like, not saying I get there's it. a lot that's different. But. No, I get it. and But it's the most natural comparison to anybody that's in the league, except that I think it makes people look at Russell Wilson and say, why don't you throw 45 touchdown passes? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it's a completely different offense. And that's – Pete Carroll doesn't want to play that style, and Andy Reid's a very different coach than Pete Carroll. But I think, you know, at least to me when I hear those comparisons, it's more just about – in particular, the mobility and the throwing on the move and making big plays out of those scramble drills. And so this leads to my next question. You have two completely opposite styles on the field Sunday night. I mean, you could not have two more different offensive philosophies than what the Chiefs do and what the Seahawks do. So what do we learn in a game like this? You know, it's hard to put too much on one game, but sometimes this kind of stylistic clash especially late in the year, December, if the weather's bad, sometimes it can kind of show, I don't want to say bring teams, you know, back to the middle, but it can kind of show where the flaws in that style of game are. If, you know, we've seen the Rams struggle a few times recently where their offense isn't working the way they want it to look if the chiefs come out and light up the Seahawks defense and score a bunch of points. You're going to say, great, their style works. But we've also seen offenses like this struggle late in the year. If the weather's bad, or if, as Pete Carroll mentioned, you know, the Chiefs really had teams on their heels early in the year. No one knew what their offense was going to look like, and it was impossible to stop. They're still really, really good. I'm not saying the books, you know, you have the book on them and you know what it's going to be like, but it's a little easier to defend a crazy offense like this late in the year than early. Well, and I just, I do think it's interesting because you mentioned the Rams. It is not, these are not the only two teams that are falling into this trend, but scoring has gone down across the league in the last few weeks as everybody does kind of come back towards the middle because late in the season is different than early in the season. Yeah, I mean, I think the the two biggest factors there are you, teams have more time to study and figure out what they're doing on offense and weather. It's a lot harder to go out and throw the ball like that in rain and wind and cold, and it's hard to catch the ball when it's like that. And that's one of the many reasons Pete Carroll likes his offensive balance, likes to be able to run the ball, because sometimes just pounding a team for five yards of carry over and over is a very effective way to play football. Well, and doesn't that fit into his entire philosophy of it's not how you start, it's how you finish? It does. I mean, you can see that in everything he does, from practice to a game to the end of the season. To I mean – you, you have to be able to run the ball. Because yeah. as we pointed out at the beginning of this, time of possession is going to be hugely important. You need to put together six- and seven-minute drives so that you are wearing out that Kansas City defense and you're not letting Patrick Mahomes light you up on four plays downfield. Yeah. And what we didn't touch on this, but one more reason to run the ball, the one thing that Chiefs really do well on defense is get after the quarterback. Well, that you is, do yeah. not want to be I, in I that position. I kind of overlooked that one. They are second in the yeah. NFL They've in sacks. They've got two guys with double-digit sacks, yes. and neither of them is Justin Houston, who has a 22-sack season on his resume. So, right. yeah, you don't want to be playing from behind in obvious passing situations against this defense. But I do think I looked – I overlooked that a little bit, not that I didn't have it down in my notes. It's because it feels like that offensive line around Russell, they're in sync and they're on the same page and – that stat does not concern me as much now as it might have earlier in oh, the year. Oh, for sure. Yeah, from what we've seen on this line, it I guess it may be concerned to be a little more with the uncertainty at, at guard. And, you know, True. Depending on who's there in is there a and what they do. But, but, yeah, it's because of both because offensive line is just better than it was, but especially because of how the Seahawks have run the ball, it's taken a lot of concern out of the pass blocking element for me. Yes, and, you know, they, they do obviously want to run the ball, not only because it's a philosophy, but um, if have you ever seen Dwayne Brown? Like, have you ever watched Dwayne Brown when they failed to pick up 
the one yard needed on a running play to get third and one? I'm not sure I have. I, he's probably he, not thrilled. He is a... <laughs> He could be a scary dude down there. Oh, yeah. Like He'll you want to run guys. the ball because he is going to be upset if you are not running the ball because that is what they are supposed to be doing. What I thought you were going to say is if you ever watched Dwayne Brown when they let him get. Oh, down when to, he pulls down. Yeah, oh, when he pulls or when they're running like a jet is sweep impressive. or something. That guy can move. He can absolutely. He's thirty three years old and he just cruises downfield. I know. They got the fastest they, offensive lineman out. They got to let him be eligible so he can run some routes. I got to think that George Fant is creating a little bit of jealousy among that room. Yeah. Yeah. He got downfield a couple times on routes last week. He, he, he wants to score. Yeah. Maybe this is the week that we get him more involved. <laughs> Lastly, before we wrap up, look, the Seahawks could have clinched a playoff spot last week in San Francisco. Here's what I liked about the locker room afterwards. They were ticked off and they were disappointed, and they weren't mad at anybody else but themselves, which yeah. I think serves as a nice motivator. But what do we know about the playoff picture right now? It's a little more complicated than last week. A win last week gets them in because it's an NFC game. It's going to improve your conference record. Boom, you're in this week. A few dominoes have to fall to clinch this week. Obviously, the first thing you can do is win. And the Seahawks will know going into the game some of the obvious scenarios if they if they can get in or not. Washington plays Saturday at Tennessee, a team with playoff hopes. If Tennessee wins that game, that does put the Seahawks in a win-and-in situation. If Minnesota loses, although they played Detroit, so I kind of like Minnesota's chances, they're in the early time slot. So if they were to lose, the Seahawks would know they're winning in. Beyond that, we're not going to get into it because it involves too many weird situations with ties and strength of a victory tiebreaker and all that that we don't need to bore fans with. But look, win and then you're in pretty good shape. Win, it, yeah. Win the next two games and you're fine. Exactly. And y- Yes, and we can have playoff conversations about what this would look like. That'd be fun. It would be fun, but that's jumping ahead of things. And right now, we got to let everybody run. That is this week's edition of the Seahawks Insider Podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure that you uh, catch everything John Boyle writes on Seahawks.com. Listen to the game on the Seahawks Radio Network.